This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I'm Coach Jen in Ocala, Florida. And I'm Mary Kitzmiller from Kemp, Texas. And you are listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for July 11th, episode 2223. Today's show is brought to you by Horseware. Good morning, Horse World. What is your favorite day of the week? stop learning you never stop understanding it's more in depth than just riding a horse exciting knowing that for the rest of my life i could work on this and, and i'll never stop learning Woohoo! and coming up on today's show mary is going to explain the importance of patience hello and then we've got a live listener question from corinna and she's going to ask about attitudes and getting things done and then after the song we're going to talk to megan warlick of new age horsemanship and i've got to play this (laughs) whose birthday is it mary it is my Irish wolfhound puppy's six-month birthday. Her name is Madigan, which I'm told means little dog. So uh, she is six <laughs> months old today. And the last time I took her to the vet, which was a few weeks ago, she was 74 pounds. So I'm sure she's gained a whole bunch more weight since then. And will continue to get bigger and bigger. Wow. <laughs> wow. So... With large breeds, do- we digress. I tear. I'm sorry. I'm going to take lead you de- lead you astray. Uh, Mary is here the second Thursday of every month, and we talk all about horse training. But we're going to have a side trip to puppy rearing for a moment. With large breed dogs, it can be a challenge, just like horses, to feed them appropriately so that they have a pr- have growth, but not to, f- to feed them so that they don't grow too fast. Is that something right. that you had to? Was there a learning curve there? Did you ask the breeder? How'd that had all pan out? Because I think oh this gosh. is this is your first giant dog, isn't it? Um, yeah, I've had regular sized dogs. This would be my first giant breed. Um, yeah, and it is a whole can of worms because if you ask fifty different people what kind of food should I free, feed my large breed puppy, you'll get fifty different answers. Yeah. And so, you know, my vet. Um, sells, uh, I think it's the science diet brand. And so I found, so, so they have a large breed puppy feed. So they recommended that one. The breeder recommended another brand of feed. And then I'm on a couple of Irish wolfhound groups on Facebook. And we all know how great Facebook groups can be. Great source of advice. Great source of advice. Yeah. (laughs) Double-edged sword. So they're saying, oh, no, don't feed the name brand because of this and this and this. And, oh, you're only feeding large brand puppy food? Well, you need giant breed 
puppy food because you have a giant breed, <laughs> oh not a goodness. large breed. And and then at one point, so we asked this question because we'd gotten one answer from a breeder, one answer from a very knowledgeable friend who specializes in large breed, and then one answer from our vet. So we thought, well, let's ask the Irish wolfhound people. Um, and so again, got a bunch of different answers. Most were very helpful. And then one woman was very mean and she said, you know, well, why don't you trust your breeder? You know, why did you even get a puppy from her if you're not going to trust her recommendation? And if, and I'm glad I never sold you any of my oh, puppies. And I'm like, Oh my God. You know, I don't, we, we did some research before getting this puppy, but we don't know this breeder very well. And our vet's telling us one thing and another very knowledgeable friend is telling us something else. It's not unreasonable to ask these questions. Um, so I, I think we've got her on the right feed, uh, right. Kibble I feed. She's not a horse. Oh, that's another thing. Um, if any of you guys have friends who have an Irish wolfhound, um, saying, comparing their dog to a horse is like a big trigger for them. They don't like it. <laughs> don't say, where's your saddle? They, they hate it. Don't say, oh, he's as big as a horse. You should put a saddle on him. Um, it's, it's a very emotional response that you will Aww. get in return. So, That's a hot and, button. and here I am because I have horses. So I'm like, yeah, she is the size of a horse. I should saddle her. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, it's been fun watching your Facebook page and watching Madigan grow and grow and grow. Her flea <laughs> collar gets smaller overnight. overnight. Wow. Um, but she is a amazing puppy. I don't know if I lucked out because I read all sorts of stories of rambunctious puppies on the groups I'm in, but she is a really, really good puppy. Um, she, you know, walks on a loose leash. She's, oh, and she's terrified of her own shadow. These things were bred in ancient times to hunt down wolves. They were the only breed big enough and fast enough to take down a wolf in Ireland. And she's afraid of the blue plastic swimming pool in our neighbor's yard. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure how she would be against a wolf, but, but yeah, she's a very timid giant. She's a good girl. Yay. Well, thank you for the update on Madigan, the Irish wolfhound. Um, and now it's time to be on to our training tip, patience. Now, every day, every month we do a little training tip. And every month there is something that happens in your life that kind of inspires the training tip. So take us back, hop in the Wayback Machine, and tell us how you got on to this topic. So there were actually two instances that inspired this topic. One was actually a Facebook post from Warwick Schiller, who's been on the show, really fantastic trainer, um, on the same subject. And he was working in a demo with someone's horse who was who liked to play fidget with the lead rope. And he was explaining, you know, the owner was very nervous about this horse having this habit and she'd tried a lot of different things and the horse still wanted to play with the lead rope. And his answer was just to wait. And she's like, well, I tried that. And he said, well, she didn't wait as long as I waited. And he's in a demo in front of a bunch of people who are, you know, I'm sure paying to be there and watch him perform. And he's standing there letting this horse chew on a lead rope. And he said he waited, 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 waited. And finally the horse just kind of ah, let down, relax. And the whole theme of that post was patience. And I've experienced this myself a great deal when working with horse owners. Um, for instance, the other day I have a horse in training 
a really lovely horse. He's a Mustang makeover graduate, um, but he's got a lot of nervous issues, um, like with trailer loading and spookiness, and he just gets really tense. And one of his biggest issues, the catalyst that brought him to my door was he was going to make, his owner was going to go to their property in New Mexico and she has a new trailer. It's an amazing roomy trailer, but it's a straight load compared to the horse is usually used to a slant load. So now the horse doesn't want to get in the trailer. And when he does, he's a nervous wreck. And she says, I don't want to haul him all the way to New Mexico in this state. Um, so she brought him to me to tackle these, uh, issues of nerves. So I've had him a few weeks and I hadn't trailer loaded him yet. I was working on some other basic things and getting him to relax. And she came out and brought her trailer and we're, uh, we're loading him. And, uh, it took me, I just, I just spent, I don't know, a couple of hours with him and we didn't actually get him on the trailer. And for me, that wasn't the goal. I just want to see, you know, where we're at and what are the things that are triggering him not want to go on. Um, the horse, we didn't have to take him anywhere. So there was no reason if he wasn't ready to, you know, throw him in the trailer and slam the door shut. So I'm just working on it, working on it, working on it with him and taking our time, doing a lot of approach and retreat. And I could tell the owner's getting very, you know, nervous. She's like, I'm so sorry you're out here having to do this for this long. And do you think it's because of this? And do you think it's because of this? And he, see, he always does this. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, no, this is, this is training. If, if it takes a couple of hours or if we work on it for a little while and we don't get it done today, no big deal. And where I have the benefit of um, hard-earned patience um, is because I have spent many, many hours over many, many years loading tons of strange horses. And sometimes it's gone really well, and sometimes it's been really frustrating, and it's taken hours and hours and hours. But um, I've always succeeded eventually. I might have to change what I'm doing. I might have to give the horse a break. I might have to take a breather, but I've always gotten it done. So now when you hand me a horse that won't get in the trailer, I, I'll just wait them out um, because I know eventually this will happen. And whatever the horse has to go through to, to feel comfortable enough to step in the trailer, I'm going to wait with them. And I think where a lot of horse owners um, aren't don't have that kind of stamina, aren't able to do that, is because they haven't had the benefit that I've had of working with lots and lots of different strange horses. Maybe the horse that won't get in the trailer, this is the first time they've ever dealt with it. And because they haven't tackled this issue many, many times and succeeded many, many times, it's very easy to think, I'm not doing something right, or my horse is doing something wrong are just getting nervous that it's taking longer than I thought it should take. And what I'm hoping I'm able to share with people is just wait them out. It's no big deal. Obviously practice these kinds of things when you don't have a deadline, when you don't have to get, you know, down the road and to the vet or, you know, to the, to your friend, meet your friends on a trail ride. But, you know, work on this when you have all the time in the world. It's an old saying, act like you have all the time in the world. It'll take five minutes. Act like you have 15 <laughs> minutes, five minutes. It's going to take all the time in the world. And um, just because your horse isn't doing the right thing, it doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing. Um, sometimes 
that's just the time it's going to take today. And it doesn't mean your horse is bad. It doesn't even mean you're doing the wrong thing. It's just, this is what we're dealing with. And it's going to be very difficult for you to determine whether you're doing the wrong thing if you don't give it ample time to work. Now, there have been many times where I've worked on something for hours and then finally said, nope, this isn't the way to go. And I had to switch, but I gave it tons of time to, to try and work. So, uh, whatever, wherever your threshold is for when you start getting nervous, like, oh my gosh, this isn't going to work. You know, learn to stretch that out and wait it out. Don't get offended by your horse. Don't let it upset you. It doesn't, again, it, it, you know, me, a professional horse trainer, sometimes I'm still out by the trailer for hours getting a horse in. It doesn't mean I'm on the wrong path. Um, it's just what we're dealing with that day and, and learn that it's not something your horse is trying to do to upset you. It's not even necessarily that you're doing something wrong. It's just, we got to wait it out and see it through. So tell me some of the, what are some things that we should be looking for in the human, the technique, and the horse that would tell us that progress is, is lacking because of something we are doing or not doing versus progress is lacking because the horse just needs time. Because sometimes getting something done, for example, loading the horse on a trailer, takes three hours because you did things wrong, right? Yeah. What are some things, regardless of what (laughs) techniques we're using, what are some things that we as humans could be doing to cause that to take longer than it should from the horse's point of view? That's a big question, but maybe some red flags. I would say the two biggest red flags, um, one, the horse completely shuts down. So he is not moving. He is not trying at all. Um, he's just letting you put whatever pressure you want on him and, but he's out to town. So he, if he's I'm gone. looking at my he's horse, out to lunch. I'm putting pressure on, for example, um, I want him to walk and walk towards the trailer, um, with me beside him or behind him versus in front of him. So I try to lead him forward with my left hand sweeping towards the trailer. My right hand has a flag and the flag is moving behind him and he just stands there and ignores me. That's a horse that's shut down. Yeah, you know, if if you've been putting pressure, 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 you've been asking him for a while and there's no discernible change in his demeanor or body position, that means something has to change. Now, sometimes that means add more pressure, add enough pressure that will compel him to do something, anything. Sometimes, and I find this the case to be uh, especially true with mules, is sometimes that means we need to take a break and we need to come back when we're both a little fresh because some types of horses and for sure the long, the long eared equines, um, when they, those sort of close up shop and you could set them on fire and they're going to go, nap. I'll just sit here and burn. I'm not moving. So, so in any case, when a horse is just completely shut down, they're out to lunch, you're not seeing any try whatsoever. Sometimes you have to be more compelling with your pressure or you might need to back off or you might need to learn to release sooner. So change the timing of your release. So the, and he, again, with the trailer, and we always come back to trailer loading because 
you see so much behavior happen at the trailer. If you can conquer trailer loading, there's, there's not a lot you're not going to be able to do. Um, so sometimes when we we're loading in the trailer, we think all four feet on the trailer door close behind them. And that's what the goal is. But some horses, that's going to be way too much. Um, some horses even taking a step forward is too much. So I might learn to release sooner. If my horses stop trying, I might be putting on a little pressure. And if I see them lean forward, okay, I'll take that. I can't get you to take a step, but I got that. I will release that. And you can slowly bring their try back out. Um, I would say another red flag that's sort of the opposite is the horse is completely overwhelmed with pressure and they are doing things that are borderline downright dangerous, like pulling the rope out of your hand, um, running away, running backwards, rearing up. Um, so if you're getting huge reactions like that where, oh my gosh, I'm not even going to be able to hold on to this horse that means you need to change what you're doing. You need to back off, um, less pressure, maybe work on just getting him near the trailer and taking that win instead of trying to get him all the way in the trailer. Um, so I'd say those are the two biggest things is either you're getting huge, enormous, dangerous, terrifying reactions, or your horse is just closed up shop and he's gone and you've got to figure out a way to bring out his try again. Those are the two biggest things that I would say tr need to trigger some sort of change in what you're doing or how you're doing it. Aha. So common scenario, trailer loading. See it all the time. Give me an instance of perhaps something that we're doing under saddle where the human being in the equation tends to lose patience. Is there something that we're that you you see a lot because you see a lot of clients, you do a lot of demos, you do a lot of clinics. Something that you commonly see that riders work on under saddle that's like, you know, you just need to be patient. Yes. See, I I'm putting say... I'm putting Mary on the on the spot here. We didn't talk about this one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I would say uh, one of the biggest things I see is the horse not standing still for the rider to get on. Um, I was at an arena riding one day and another trainer had come in to uh, work on some of their horses. I think we were getting a lot of rain and so people were hauling to indoors to ride. And this horse took a couple of steps as she was trying to get on and she immediately took the rein and jerked the horse uh, with the bit in the mouth backwards a hundred steps, you know, floating his teeth the entire time. So to me that used that kind of stuff did used to annoy me. Like, I need you to stand still. Why are you moving? We've got to get to work, but you've got to think of it as, okay, why are you moving? Are you nervous? Are you upset? Have you not been taught properly to stand still? Um, and having a big emotional reaction on my end to that, most of the time if a horse won't stand still, it comes from anxiety. So ripping them in the mouth and punishing them and making them um, feel frenzied is the exact opposite of what you want to do. That horse is really not going to stand still for you now. So, and I've talked about this before. That's, you know, that might be a day where we work on lining up to the mounting block over and over and over and over again. And that might be all we get done that day. And again, when you really wanted to work on flying lead changes, that can be really frustrating. But to me, that's just signaling where the horse's mind is that day. If I can't get them to stand still for me to mount, 
I'm not going to have good flying lead changes. It's not going to happen. If I can't get the basics, I'm not going to have the, the advanced stuff. So I'd say that one's a big issue that tends to try people's patience. Um, and kind of along that line, that along the line of that vein of anxiety, um, uh, when I was working on people, uh, stopping their horses at a clinic, uh, a little while back and, uh, people were not giving their horse enough time to listen to their cues to stop. So they were saying the word, whoa, you're trying to get the horse to stop off of the word, whoa, or your seat or your legs. And they'd say it and it'd be like a nanosecond before they're pulling on the reins. And I'd have to say, do not tug on those reins. Wait, you know, say, whoa, count one Mississippi, two Mississippi. Evaluate. Is the horse trying to slow down? Nope. Okay. Now's the time to pick up the reins. Now, if the horse is getting ready to buck you off, do whatever you got to do, but, <laughs> uh, you know, save yourself. But if you're working on teaching the horse a new cue, you want to teach him to be softer, more responsive to uh, aids like your voice and your seat. Don't be so quick to rip on the reins. Give him a moment because when I, when I start teaching a horse, whoa, um, it may take me a hundred times if I say, whoa, wait him out. Okay. Nothing's happening. Bring him to a stop. Say, whoa, wait a little bit. Mm, nothing's happening. Bring him to a stop. But the first time I can see their little mind working and they're starting to tie this word together with the behavior I want. I say, whoa, and it's not, they don't just stop on a dime. I feel them slow down in their body. And that's where the training happens. Instead of pulling on the reins, I wait and allow them to slow down. And it they might take 20 or 30 feet to finally trickle to that stop. But the first time they get that done and I don't have to pick up the reins, man, that's a huge reward uh, moment for me. And it, I wouldn't have seen it had I just snatched on the reins in two seconds. Yeah. And Letting them figure it out. you got to let them learn. You can't babysit them and be a helicopter parent all the time. So as long as everything's safe and it's not a situation where you're trying to save your life, you know, give the cue, wait it out, and then respond accordingly. There you go. So, and that's very interesting and something that I experienced a lot because I spent a lot of time teaching riders is the rider becomes impatient with something for example, teaching the halt or the stop without, and without putting a whole lot of thought into, okay, I'm trying to teach the horse to halt off of my seat or my voice aid. The horse is trying a little bit, but they're, they feel, feel like they're stuck. Okay. He, he tries a little bit, but he's not getting any better. I'm trying and I'm trying and he's just, it's the same. It's a eh, response um, to do a little self-examination. And so a lot of times, and I found this to be the most common problem teaching the riders is the horse has made the connection, but the horse isn't getting better at the response because the rider is in his way and you're making a better response harder to do. For example, I say, ho, he should come to a halt quite promptly. But when he tries to halt promptly, you slam onto his back. Or yes. some, something is happening with the rider physically that is actually making it harder for the horse to give you the right response. You ask for the flying change, but when you do, you accidentally put too much pressure on the inside rein. And he's going, what the heck was that all about? So I'm not going to try real hard. So the patience to um, give yourself time 
to learn the skill, I think is is it a one of the ingredients that can be really useful to give the horse time to for him to learn the skill, but give yourself time to learn the skill too, especially if you're one of 90% of human beings with horses that you're learning it together. More and more and more, the vast majority of people with horses nowadays have a horse that the horse and the human are learning skill sets together. Fewer and fewer people have the advantage and the privilege of getting one that's already made, right? Right, right. And even those already made ones, they can come un- unmade, unmade very yes. quickly. Yeah, so you, you are always horse training. You always are. I don't care if you only have one horse and you've never taken money for training horses. You are always training your horse. doesn't matter how broke or unbroke he is. And you're either hopefully teaching him to do the right thing, or you might be teaching him every day to do the wrong thing. But he doesn't know that. He only knows where he's going to find relief. And uh, some, if you're not going to give it to him, he will find it in other ways. So that's go. a that's a big one to keep in mind. That's a big one. Oh, my gosh. <gasps> Such big topics. I know. <laughs> that's why I love doing this show on the second Thursday of every month. So, um. This show each month is brought to you by the fine folks at Horseware. And I think you have a little bit of something to say about Horseware and summertime. Yep. So summer is well underway. The sun is blazing and biting insects are here in force. It's time to get serious about protecting your horse with the Rambo Protector Fly Sheet. The Rambo Protector is specifically designed to offer superior protection from both flies and sunlight, which would help me because most of mine are sun bleached this year. Uh, Made from unique patented fabric that's super soft and comfortable, this fly sheet provides both UV protection and maximum breathability. The Rambo Protector offers maximum coverage with its V-front closure and sure-fit neck design. Improved hood shape for greater coverage when grazing, supersized tail flap, leg arches, belly protection, and three straight surcingles. This fly sheet also features a tail strap and shine-enhancing polyester shoulder uh, and main lining created in extremely durable fabric. The Rambo protector is built to protect your horse for many seasons. Visit horseware.com for more details and find a near you. Dun, dun, dun. And that's a must have for so many folks is some fly protection for your pony. Yeah, it's really nice. I've had mine for three years, I think, and it still looks brand new. So we're we're giving our guest today, Corinna, a holler, and let's uh, let's prerequisite There's this. There's Corinna. Corinna's here. She's live on the air with Mary Kitzmiller, and we're going to talk a lot about a little issue you're having with your Mustang. Why don't you fill us in, Corinna? Okay, great. Good morning, everyone. Um, so I adopted a Mustang uh, from one of the makeover um, uh, the makeovers last summer and uh he's he was well started under saddle um but i noticed some holes in his training because you know as everyone's aware uh the trainers only have 100 days to uh train these mustangs and they couldn't possibly do everything so we try um, but (laughs) (laughs) right And, and you know really he had a fantastic start so i can't complain about that at all um, but where the holes are is um, really leading, and um, which translates into going to the trailer or other places that he doesn't particularly care for, like the barn. 
so um, as I said in my email, um, I've been using target training, which he's really into, and that helps motivate him to, you know, get to a destination. Uh, but I need some more tools to convince him that, you know, getting in a barn is a good idea or getting in a trailer is, is just fine. Okay. And so when he doesn't want to do something, he's going through a small space. Um, is he acting lazy, nervous, anxious? Uh, what, what exactly is he doing when he gives you the I don't want to attitude? So a couple things happen. Um, I've noticed, you know, his his head will go up and that I have interpreted to mean that, you know, I'm not comfortable with this. So, okay, we back up until he's comfortable and, you know, his head lowers a little bit. and He's like, I'm not threatened by whatever that thing is anymore. And then we just kind of do some approach and retreat. Other mm-hmm. times it's like um, he's not really concerned. He just plants his feet mm-hmm. and won't go forward. Okay, interesting. Uh, what makeover did you get him from? Just curious. Um, it's the uh, Washington Youth Mustang Yearling. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so that is not uh, an uncommon problem uh with uh makeover graduates uh like you said they they only have so many days and uh at the end of it no matter how brilliant the training is there's still a green horse so you will see these kinds of things pop up um so i think the target training is a really great start to get the horse to really want to come forward um you can also pair that with a cue Uh, So you can cue him with your lead rope and then present the target and have him touch the target. I would say uh, if you're tackling it from a positive reinforcement standpoint, uh, it's really important to sort of really micro shape um, uh, what what you're going to reward. So, for instance, going to a trailer and I think you're on the right track. You're doing approach and retreat. Um, I find that the horse is going to, the horse tells me whether or not he's going to get in the trailer um, well before the trailer. And there's usually a threshold that they don't want to cross that might be several feet before we even get near the trailer. So that's where I'm going to stay. And I'm going to, either by using the target or using uh, pressure release training, I'm going to work on, so there's an imaginary line that I'll, you know, I imagine in front of my horse and, and it sounds like you've spotted the sign where he's walking along and then the head shoots up. So that's usually him saying, I'm, I'm not going to do it. He might walk all the way up to the trailer, but it's that moment where the head shoots up and he gets nervous and, or you feel his feet slow down if he's being a little bit more pokey about it. Um, that's the moment where he's saying, no, this is not going to happen. I've crossed my thre- I've crossed my threshold. I don't want to do it. So even though the goal is to get on the trailer or to get in the barn, I'm going to work on that area where he's throwing his head up and he's saying, "I don't feel comfortable." And I'm not. I'm gonna. Uh, what I want him to do is step one foot or two over that imaginary line and deal with it 
and I'm going to keep, and as soon as I get him to cross over, if I'm using clicker training, I can click and treat. If I'm using pressure release training, I'm going to give him a big release of pressure, leave him alone for a moment, and then I'll take him away. And I'm going to keep crossing that imaginary line over and over and over until he ha- does not have the response that he was having where he's slowing his feet down or he's throwing his head up. Now, here's where a lot of people, myself included, um, can fail with the pressure release is you recognize, okay, here's where my horse is saying no, here's where I need to work on. And, and you're very good at releasing the horse, uh, when he gives you a little try, but the horse will very soon learn that, oh, I only have to get to this point. That's all I need. And I'm not going to try any harder. So they'll, they'll play this game with you. I, I, the the Mustang I was working with recently learned really quick that I was rewarding him for putting two feet on the ramp of the trailer. So we got that several times and I released him and I gave him food and I was, uh, and I was very rewarding because he gave me such a big try. But then he realized really quick, he's like, well, that's all I'm going to do for you. I'm only going to put those two feet on the trailer because I've gotten rewarded for that before. Well, once I've conquered a certain criteria, so I've decided you know, initially it was, can I just get two feet on the ramp? If I could get that, I would be so happy with you. Well, once we've gotten that and I've rewarded it and we've gotten it over and over and over again, and it seems like it's no longer a huge issue for the horse. This is where I'm going to start demanding a little bit more. And just getting two feet on the ramp is no longer good enough. Now that doesn't mean that I'm going to all of a sudden start wailing on him for not giving me more, but you're not going to hear the click And I'm not going to release the pressure until you give me a little bit more. Now, even if that little bit more is just leaning forward a little bit, I'm happy with that. Or putting those two feet a little further up the ramp, I'm happy with that. But once I meet the initial criteria, meaning I just wanted you to get two feet on the ramp. Once I've met that and I'm satisfied with that and the horse seems okay with that, um, I need more from him. And it might take me a little while to get that next step. Um, but I will not give up until you give me that uh, something more than what you just gave me. Because we know you can put two feet on the ramp. You see, you've done it several times. We've got that conquered. Now you've got to give me more. Um, now, usually at this point, especially if you had to go somewhere and you know you, you've gotten your horse to get really close to the trailer, uh, it's very easy once they start putting feet on the ramp to push really hard and say, just get all the way on because we're almost on the trailer. As soon as we do that, the horse is going to smell trouble and go, oh, you're trying to shove me in this scary box. I'm not going to do that. So it's a balance between we don't want to ask so much that he's going to shut down on us, but we're, we want to make sure that he knows it's not, it's no longer good enough just to give me two feet on the ramp. You've got to try a little harder. And as soon as he gives me that try, I'm going to back off. I'm going to take him away from the trailer. I'm going to click and treat if that's what I'm doing. And I'm going to treat it like he just won the Olympics. Um, so I think you're really on the right track with the approach and retreat and recognizing where he is, uh, is feeling tense and saying that he doesn't want to. Um, the other piece of advice I'd give you is you don't always have to practice this kind of thing with the trailer. Um, this sounds so much like this horse I have in training. He not only has a problem with the trailer, but going in his stall gate, which he goes through every 
single day. He does the <laughs> same thing. He when when his shoulders get in that four foot narrow gate, I can feel his energy. He goes, oh, I'm trapped, and runs through the stall gate. So it's very tempting if we're done with our session and he kind of hops through the stall gate really quick just to take the halter off and be done. But you know, when he did that, I was like, Nope, guess what? Our, our session's going to last longer. And I sent him back and forth through that stall gate a hundred times until he could cross through willingly. So there's a lot of areas where this horse is probably telling, and I think you recognize those, uh, where he's telling you, I don't want to do this. And those are the areas where I would practice a whole bunch in your barn aisle, your gates, um, going through narrow obstacles, loading on the trailer. Um, so does any of that make sense or, or do you find that helpful or have any more questions on that? Yes, I find that immensely helpful. I, I feel like that you've been watching my sessions with him, <laughs> um, because we <laughs> Because we have been doing exactly that. You know, I have rewarded him for getting two feet in the trailer. And he's like, cool, this is all I need to do. And um, so that is super helpful. Um, I guess one of my questions is, when when I get to that point and I want to up the game a little bit and say, okay, that's great, you did that, but now I need more from you because you've demonstrated that you can do that well. Um, What kind of pressure do you put on your horse to up the game a little bit. Okay, so this is where the method you're going to use if you're using positive reinforcement training versus a negative reinforcement, which is pressure release. This is where these two paths are going to diverge. Um, and I've I've used both uh, together. If you decide, well, I only want to do this based on target training and from a positive reinforcement stance, um, because we're going to sort of take away the option of using uh, any kind of pressure, like tapping on the horse or waving the rope. Um, In that case, if you're doing it solely with the target training idea, um, you will have to cut his cut what your your goals down in these tiny little slivers of oh you leaned an inch further than you did last time and take those wins but if you're doing it using uh your classical approach which is your pressure and release training um the kinds of pressure that i do it depends on the horse it seems like each horse has a little bit of a different preferences some horses um I've had respond really well to really light taps anywhere behind the driveline. So that'd be behind the horse's girth area. Um, some horses did better when I used a flag and actually didn't touch them, but you, you know, used a flag behind them and wave the flag. I would say whatever you decide to do, um, it needs to occur behind the horse's driveline. So behind the horse's girth. Um, and I will, put enough pressure that is necessary to compel the horse to do something. Let's say I put pressure on the horse and he starts backing. Well, I won't increase the pressure at that point because he's trying to do something. It's not the right thing, but he's, he's, he's compelled to do something. So I'll maintain that level of pressure until he comes forward again and then I'll release. Um, so just any kind of, you can use, uh, you can use your lead rope, you can use a dressage whip, you can use a flag, you can use your buddy standing at a safe distance behind the horse. Um, the other thing that's really important, um, is 
I am going to try to keep the lead rope relatively loose. I might put some pressure on the halter as I'm asking them to come forward. But as soon as they come forward, I want to keep that halter and lead rope really loose. Because if I'm pressuring them from behind and pulling them from the front and they take a step forward, but I continue to pull on them or continue to add the pressure, even though they've stepped forward, they've got no incentive to keep trying because in their mind, they said, well, I tried to do it, but I still felt pressure from you. So obviously this isn't the right thing. It didn't make me feel any better. So I'm just going to stand here and ignore it. So I'd say keep uh, the, the halter and lead rope. Mainly I use that to keep their head straight and in the opening of that trailer. If they're coming forward, I have a real loose lead rope. I want them to feel immense relief going forward. Um, so, so that's what I would do if I was, if I was using a pressure and release kind of method. Okay. Oh, that's great. That's really helpful. And I have one question if I'm allowed. Yeah. So, um, sometimes, um, well, actually what he does a lot. So if I get him, um, like say through a threshold, like, uh, like halfway into the stall, for instance, um, he has a tendency to turn his head and look out, look back behind him, like, where are my buddies? Um, and it's like he, He's not. He doesn't want to face forward any longer. He he would rather sort of have that mental escape of um, turning around. So, uh, is it like? Oh, I mean, I guess I'm sort of answering my own question. You know, it seems like that is something I also need to pay attention to. That he's not taking a mentally checking out from the exercise. Yeah, you'll see, uh, like with the horse I'm training who wants to run through the stall door, there's a spot where he feels the most uncomfortable and he wants, he, he's doing things like looking around, wanting to run forward or wanting to back out, or at the very least is just standing very tense. And that's, that's the, I'm trapped alarm going off, isn't it? Yes. He's like someone Mm -hmm. shutting my coffin door. You know, it's, it's that, it's that kind of buried alive, (laughs) claustrophobic feeling, Um, so for, for my horse, it's when he's standing with his shoulders, when the, when the gateway is like, even with his shoulders, I can feel his energy. He feels just like, I need to not be here right now. Mm -hmm. Um, so what I try to do is instead of getting him to run through because he just wants to get it over with, um, I, -hmm. I bring him up to the opening and before we go in, I said, just wait a second, just wait. We're not, we're not going in the stall yet. Just wait. And then I make him take another step. And then I say, just wait. And if he runs through before I'm able to stop him, I'll just bring him out and try it again. And I want him to learn just to take one step, one step, one step, one step. And as he's coming to that point where he's like, Oh my God, this is terrible. I want to see if I can make him wait a moment. You know, obviously he's too scared for me to say, stand in here for an hour and be perfect. But (laughs) if he can stop for a moment and just be okay for a moment. Okay. Now you can go on through, but guess what? We're going to do it again, but I'm going to give him that relief of, Hey, you just stood there for a second. And I know that was a huge deal for you. So now go on through and I'm going to practice that over. And this does pair really well with clicker training when he's in that spot. Um, you can, you know, you can use that food reward to say, Hey, you made it. This is, this is where I want you. Um, but if he can stand there for a moment, I'll be happy. And then when we try again, can you stand a moment or two longer? And 
like I said, this was, uh, the, when it happened to me with this particular horse, it was at the, I was done. I had just worked with him for a few hours and I ended up spending another half hour in and out of the gate because I know if I get that worked out, then when we go to the trailer tomorrow, you're going to have some mental skills available because you conquered this gate thing and it's going to make you better with your trailer loading. Okay. Awesome. I think that's really helpful. Thank you. Yay. Awesome. Thanks for calling in. You bet. Have a great day. I'm going to practice that tonight after work. All right. Good <laughs> All right. luck. Post post on the auditor's page how it went. I will. I'll do that. Bye-bye. Bye. So if you're not an auditor, you heard me mention posting it on the auditor's page, we have this gang of folks who find great value in listening to the horse the programs on Horse Radio Network, and they become auditors by supporting us through Patreon. And if you would like to do that too, you can just go to Horses in the Morning or horseradionetwork.com and click on the auditor banner. I believe it's on the right-hand side of the page nowadays. And check that out. You can do it for as little as a buck a month. Or if you're feeling generous and you see lots of value in what we do, ha-ha, um, you, uh, you can go a little higher. So uh, there we go. That was so helpful. That really got me thinking about the process I went through with my horse, Nigel, who came to me a poor loader and a very, very worried traveler. And the process I went through to help get through that so that he could become a dependable loader and a less worried traveler. Because he's the first horse I've ever had that genuinely, he's like, no, nah, there are issues here. And uh, one of the mistakes I made was to not take the pressure off. I thought I was taking pressure off. But from his point of view, what he saw as pressure was not what I saw as pressure. I see pressure, somebody waving a flag furiously or yanking really hard on a lead rope. I always saw pressure as something that was very high adrenaline, high energy. When from his point of view, the simple act of gently encouraging him towards the ramp was pressure. He didn't outwardly show that. He, was, he looked quiet on the outside, but he kept it quiet on the outside till it just would boil over into rearing and pitching. So that's a great point you make about making sure you take the pressure off, keep your timing, have that patience. Great stuff! Yay! Yay! Now, I think I need to take a brain break because that really got the juices going. And we're going to listen to a little song. I think today we're going to have a little Templeton Thompson because she's one of my favorites, and we're going to listen to Beautiful Day. Awesome.
that was Templeton Thompson, Beautiful Day. You can find all of her music at templetonthompson.com. And you can also find it on CD Baby, Spotify, iTunes, lots of other places. The indomitable Templeton Thompson. Now, Mary. Yes. I think we've got a couple of minutes before we call our next guest. Do you have a listener-submitted question that we can dive into for a few minutes? I have quite a few. Um, Our first one is from Carrie Jo. Any tips to help a naturally looky, concerned, high-headed horse, saddlebred and Arab cross, relax when he gets in one of his moods, particularly in a situation where working him isn't a good option? Sometimes his anxiousness is related to buddy sourness, but other times it's related to the invisible monsters in the trees. I think we've all been there. Um, (laughs) For instance, standing in the cross ties grooming usually stands beautifully unless his buddy gets out of sight. Then he fidgets, swings his body side to side, trying to catch a glimpse of his friend, paws, etc. Also, sometimes when we bring him in to eat his grain, he'll start eating just fine. Then something outside catches his attention. He will then just stare out the window in search of the boogeyman. If he gets really concerned, he'll pace from the window to the door. When this happens, how can I help him relax and go back to eating? He exhibits similar high-headedness during riding, but I'm getting better but not great at keeping his mind focused. But how do I help him release the anxiety in situations where he is more contained, cross-tie, stall, etc., and I need to help him there for a while? Drugs. Okay. No, that's not the right answer. Yeah, lots of drugs. No. <laughs> Um, so yes, big surprise. He's a saddlebred and he's high headed. Um, but obviously the high, so their, their confirmation lends them to naturally be more high headed, but that, but you're recognizing correctly that the high headedness in this case is a, is a sign of this kind of nervous scanning the horizon for predators state that he's in. Um, I recently had a Frisian in training and that was his go-to as well. He would tense up, shoot his head straight up in the air. Um, you know, they were originally bred to be fancy carriage horses. So that's kind of a natural place for him to go. But actually, after a few months of training, he was going around like a Western pleasure pony. Uh, so I worked a lot on head lowering with him, beca- not because I wanted this uh, an aesthetic type of thing where I wanted a low headset, but because teaching a horse to lower their head helps them to calm down. I'm not sure what the scientific physiological process is that happens when you teach them to lower their head, but it helps them get all those good brain chemicals that make them feel good. And if I might so, jump in here. Yes. To, uh, to um, differentiate, teaching a horse to lower his head is not the same as putting a piece of gear on the horse so he cannot right. lift his head. Two different right. things. Just exactly. Continue. He needs to find release when that head goes down. So I teach it a number of different ways, mostly with positive reinforcement and shaping his natural behavior. Um, or I teach it by with a little pressure from the halter or lead rope. I usually teach this on the ground first. So that's a really, uh, that's a, I would look, I would do some research on different methods to teach a horse to lower their head. It's a great calm down cue. But what I'm seeing in general with this question is a lot of red flags where this horse is not in the right state, whether he's stalled, he's in cross ties, under saddle. It seems like he's fine to a point and then he's gone. He's not there anymore. The demons have taken over and you don't know what's going to (laughs) happen. Don't answer the door. It's the bad guy. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, 
what I would recommend if, if this is a horse you're bringing me for training, um, would be a groundwork overhaul. I would find a reputable program that clicks with you or a professional to work with you because all of these things that are showing up as problems, he won't stand still if he's nervous or he's, he has trouble in the stall or he's trouble under saddle. These are all symptoms of a much greater problem. Um, which just has to do with, uh, he's just, he's not with you. Sometimes he is until he's not. Uh, when I work, would it be be reasonable to describe this horse as not comfortable in his own skin? Yes. And and that's not terribly uncommon. No, it's not uncommon at all. (laughs) Hotter blooded horses like your Arabs and saddlebreds. Um, you know, the great thing about having kind of a cold, cooler blooded, lazier, some quarter horse types is you, you work them in one or two circles and they're like, what do I have to do to not burn calories? And you're like, (laughs) just be calm. They're like, got it. I'm going to be calm now. These guys, especially Arabians, they have stamina for years. They can run through the desert thousands of miles without a drop of water. You have to be smarter than them, not more. Yeah. (laughs) Tiring them out isn't going to work. It is a very much a mind game. Uh, You've got to get into their brain. So um, I would recommend a strong and thorough groundwork revamp um, because what I what I focus on doing with my horses in training is it's not so much the behaviors they perform, it's um, getting them on the same page as me. And and this horse, I can tell, uh, just guessing, just speculating from what I'm reading, is the kind of horse where when I'm teaching a clinic and I'm introducing myself and we're all talking about our horses, this is the one who's doing whirly birds around the poor owner and just like head high and what do I do? Where do I go? What's that horse doing over there? And so that's usually the first horse I go for. And I cannot force this horse to stand still. He's a big, powerful, athletic horse, and his brain is gone. He 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 doesn't know what to do with himself. So I can't make him stand still. I can't hobble him. I can't tie him up and have it all be okay. So what I do with this horse is I I give him something very simple to do, and it usually involves I teach the horse to stay back away from me. If you're going to act like a lunatic, do it away from me. And I want you to face me. Just give me two eyes. So two very simple things that I want him to follow. Stay away. Give me two eyes. If you want to freak out and have a heart attack, great. Just do it over there while facing me so that I can hold on to you. And it might take a lot of me reminding this horse, stay back there. Give me two eyes. Stay back there. Give me two eyes. Stay back there. Give me two eyes. And I can't tell you what a miracle worker this has been for some horses. They go from, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. And I, and I, when I take a hold of them, I'm not mad at them. I'm not punishing them. I'm not trying to make them feel bad. I'm just saying, hey, don't look at that horse over there. You got to look at me. Look at me. And then stay over there. So in case you explode, I don't get my head kicked off. As long as we can get that done, I'm happy with you. And every time he finds that spot where he stays back there, gives me two eyes, I release. Okay, there's your safe zone right there. This is where you're going to find relief. And I tell that horse over and over and over again, you want to find relief? It's over here. This is where you find relief. And every time, I swear, the horse goes from, you know, jumping around in his own skin to ah, head lower, lick you, lick you, lick you, lick you. This is the kind of horse, uh, the, the analogy I use for this horse is 
it, you know, if I'm in the top floor of a burning building all by myself and I don't know how to get out, I'm going to be running around like a maniac, pulling my hair out and screaming, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? But if all of a sudden someone with authority enters the scene, a fireman in all of his fire gear comes crashing through the window with a hatchet and he says, follow me. I know what to do. I'm going to go, oh, okay. And I'm going to be able to focus and help get myself out of that burning building. That's what your horse is looking for. He's looking for someone to tell him what to do. If he can't find it in you, he's going to look at his buddies. Where are my buddies? Maybe they'll know what to do. Or he's going to try to pacify himself by moving his feet. So you need to be there and say, this is what I want you to do. Give him simple goals to attain, big releases when he finds it. But I'd say all in all, a really good thorough groundwork program, work with a professional if you can, is going to help conquer a lot of these issues. And a lot of them will tend to naturally uh, go away on their own when you get some really, really thorough control of his feet on the ground. And I have a lot more to say about that, but only so much time in the show. But great question. <laughs> great question. It's a very common scenario with horses that are higher energy or have a high... Um, oh my God, the world is going to eat me. Sure, those are great. Now, we have our next guest, Megan Warlick, and I'm going to give her a call live here on the show. While I give her a call, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Megan and what she's going to be talking about today. Okay, so we've had Megan on the show before. She hit the scene uh, doing EXCA, which is Extreme Cowboy Racing. And she's been extremely successful in that area, uh, winning the Reserve World Championship in 2016. And she was a Calgary Cowboy Stampede champion in 2017. She's been all over the world teaching clinics and sort of lighting the horsemanship world on fire. And she's going to talk with us today on uh, lots of different topics, including the new age of horsemanship. Now, we're going to have an awesome, if you're listening to the live show moment, when you put Megan's phone number into the notes here for me, uh, we lit, we missed the last digit. So maybe. Oh, I need my that. goodness. I, just <laughs> I need saw one that. more digit okay. or it won't work. Okay, I've got to pull it up in my Facebook chat. How the heck did I have that happen? Oh, because you're human. Six. Six is the last digit. Yes. Would you like to buy a vowel? No, that's not right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're gonna ring up. We're gonna ring up Megan, and I always associate the extreme cowboy racing with serious Hello. craziness. So Megan is here. Welcome to the show, Megan. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. You're live on the show with uh, me, Coach Jen, and Mary Kitzmiller. And we're going to have a little chat here. So, Mary, take it over. All right. So, I believe we had you on the show back in 2017. And we talked all, I, I think, about EXCA. Uh, mentioned you've done a lot of really awesome work in that uh, area. Um, and then... Uh, I'm when we were chatting last night over Facebook, you mentioned the new age of horsemanship. So what exactly does that mean? What is the new age of horsemanship? Yeah. So it's really exciting for me personally. Um, a great friend of mine, Gary Wells, who is from Australia, he coined the term. Um, and his passion is equine body work, which we'll, I'll talk about later, the Emmett for horses therapy. But what the new age of horsemanship is, is it's a new approach to horsemanship overall. Um, about 10 years ago, when I got involved in horsemanship, it was just a, 
it was a common term. It was exciting. It was new. It was a way to develop a partnership with your horse. And it was, it taught a lot of people um, in math ways, how to train their horses and how to communicate better. Um, But now the new age of horsemanship is taking it a step further rather than just going through a process or a training method that's specific to one individual. It's taking the whole horse approach. Um, so, so what Gary and I, um, are fully behind is the performance model. It's called, it's involved feet, teeth, diet, and muscle. And so what that is, is if you don't have your horse's feet, um, in the best shape that they can possibly be in, if they're not regularly maintained, if they're not being corrected, if they need it, if their teeth aren't managed, uh, meaning teeth float, um, every six months to a year, probably at minimum. Um, if you don't have your horse's diet to the best of that horse's needs, um, and if you're not maintaining that horse's muscle um, structure through either alternative therapies, massage, acupuncture, acupressure, the Emmet for horses, um, chiropractic, it, it involves all of those things. If you're not looking at your horse's feet, teeth, diet, and muscle structure, um, you're, you're lacking something in your horsemanship. So it's a really neat um, concept and I am hundred percent behind it because being a performance horse trainer now going from just training horses to showing horses, that is so, so important to me. If, if my horse's feet are out of balance, if their teeth haven't been done, if they're not in it, having a really good diet, I'm not going to get the best performance out of my horse. I'm not going to have a happy horse and I'm not ultimately looking out for my horse's overall well-being. Well, that's real. That sounds really exciting and promising, um, and it's something I think any horse owner has been through themselves. Uh, you know, especially like talking about feet. My horse Guthrie, um, he for about a full year before he was actually diagnosed with uh, navicular um, issues, the way he was moving, he was not unsound, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he had a reluctance to go into the canner and I kept thinking, well, this is the, you know, it's your confirmation. You're really heavy on the front end and this is just how you move and you're lazier. And, and it took me, it took me a year of many vets and many farriers before, oh, this was a pain and discomfort issue the whole time. And of course I, I severely regret not catching it sooner, but I'm very thankful that now I can recognize these signs a lot quicker. And as a trainer, I hear all the time, oh, my horse doesn't want to collect or he bites me every time I saddle him or this and that, the other, or he was fine with this bit last week, but now he's rearing up and threatening to flip over. And I've learned to hear, to look beyond, okay, is this a training issue? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's all just behavior. But a lot of times I can I can sense there's discomfort, there's pain. And so I, I'm, I'm really uh, condone taking a whole horsemanship approach. So do you have any specific protocols that you're recommending to people as far as, uh, as, as how you go about caring for your horse? Um, you know, not and nothing specific. I'm, what I'm trying to do is bring awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, bring awareness to these things and try to help educate people with, to the best of my knowledge, I'm sure no expert in feet, teeth or diet, um, or muscle, but, but I'm trying to continue educating myself. So what, what I've been encouraging people to do is, is, um, educate themselves to the best of your ability. Um, you know, I've been through multiple farriers. I've been through multiple equine dentists. 
tried all kinds of diet stuff with different horses and trying to figure out what's best. And no two horses are the same, but, but it's just continuing your education is basically what it is. And, and never just settling and going, Oh, that's good enough. Um, it's building a relationship with your equine dentist, with your farrier and with your veterinarian, um, and educating yourself in your horsemanship skills. So it's, it's just a whole horse approach and it's a whole lifestyle approach. Um, I take it very seriously because horses are my life. Um, and, and I just keep trying to learn as much as I can. So that's what we're trying to do is encourage people to just seek out more information you're never going to get it all right. <laughs> You're never going to learn it all. You know, there will always be one horse that comes along that makes you go, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. You know, or, oh, my gosh, I need to do something totally different for this one. So, so um, yeah. I feel like thing. horses... Um, I feel like sometimes when you're trying to solve an issue with a horse, it's sort of like an episode of House where at first <laughs> we think it's lupus, but then it's not. And it might yeah. be this other thing. And then you, you circle all the way back around and it ends up being the thing you thought it was in the first place. But um, I think you're so right as far as, um, you know, not only do, does how the horse feel uh, physically um and things like diet and teeth and feet do contribute to things they're doing behaviorally. But I've recently learned through this navicular journey um, that diet uh, not only relates to um, to how they ride and how they are mentally, but it t- it's a huge factor in their feet as well. And I think, you know, a lot of this stuff seems like common sense. Like, yeah, of course, what we feed them counts. Um But in one of the um, Facebook groups I'm in that is really big on rehabbing horses with issues like laminitis and navicular, uh, the first thing everyone recommends, you know, someone will post on there, well, you look at my horse's feet. What do you guys think? How, How should I trim his feet? Should I put shoes? Whatever. Everyone recommends diet change first, which is very odd because you would think, well, it's how his feet are shaped. I should change my farrier or get different tools or a different, you know, a different trimming approach. But they, they say the diet is really huge and changing the diet can help prevent and solve issues uh, ranging from navicular laminitis, white line, thrush, and just overall growing a better foot for your horse. And speaking Mm -hmm. of diet, so as a performance horse trainer, do you have any specific uh, diet guidelines you like to follow with with your horses to keep them working their best? Um, nothing specific. I still haven't really been super satisfied with any certain feeds. Um, one thing that I do maintain in my horse's diet is I really try to keep horses um, turned out as much as possible where they can move. Um, pasture, we've got a ton of coastal here in Texas, especially with all the rain. Um, and then supplementing them beyond that, always having salt or a mineral out and um, supplementing them with alfalfa if needed. But probably the biggest thing, the one thing that I really keep an eye on is my horse's weight. I don't want any of them to get overweight um, because as a performance horse trainer, the heavier they are and in excess weight, the harder it is on their joints. So I don't ever want to overfeed one. Um, whatever it is that I'm feeding them. Some of them are on different things. Some of them are on no grain. Some of them are on alfalfa. Some of them are not. 
but I don't want any of them to be overweight because that just is a total injustice to actually then asking that horse to perform and work. So, so that's probably my one, like, we're not going to go there. We're not going to let anything get, get hit fat. Um, but there isn't an exact guideline providing as much forage as they can, you know, get during the day that keeps them in a good weight. That's probably the number one. And then supplementing beyond that, I don't still don't have a good answer for that because there's so many products. There's so many different, excuse me, things, and it's hard to know exactly where to start. So I, I try a minimalist approach. Initially, I don't want to just throw the book at them and you're going to get all this stuff because then you don't know what's helping you and what's not helping you. So. Yeah, I think the weight is something, um, especially you and I are on the Western side of things with, with kind of bigger, fleshier quarter horses, and you sort of get used to the aesthetic of the really shiny coat and um, kind of super muscly, chubby horses. And so when I look at an off, I have an off the track thoroughbred and I look at him and I'm like, oh my gosh, he's so thin. (laughs) And he's actually (laughs) probably at a really healthy weight compared to my chubby Mustangs and quarter horses. And yeah, I think especially, uh, young horses, um, I'd almost rather uh, on a yearling, especially I'd almost rather see a little bit of rib than being overweight, especially on those growing joints. Um, So one of the things I've seen you post about quite a bit, um, and I honestly have, I've done no research on this. I have no idea what it is, but you talk about Emmet for horses and that's a type of body work. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So Emmet for horses is a light touch neuromuscular release. Um, It is similar to acupressure. So there's no, there's no tool. There's no mechanical element. There's no device. It is simply your hands. Um, and in recent years I had injuries to myself and I'd had to have body work and, um, it, it's opened my mind to different kind of more touchy feely elements of, of, um, body work, I guess, not just, oh, take something to ease the pain and, and energy work. So whether you believe in it or not, um, we all have energy currents in our bodies and, we can help assist the horse and release muscles and help improve their overall well-being with just our hands. And so Emmet for Horses is an Australian um, developed program. Uh, Gary Wells is the horse instructor that teaches all over the United States. He comes basically every quarter for about three months at a time, goes home for a month or two, comes back. He teaches all levels of the horse course. They are bringing a dog course over to the United States. Um, and there's a human course that's operating as well as in the U.S. So it's really exciting. It's very simple. It's very forgiving for me. Um, I'm not highly educated or and don't have a medical background. And, and this treatment or therapy was very easy for me to learn, very easy to understand. And the best part about it is anyone can do it. A child can do it. Um, an adult can do it. If you have arthritis and your hands hurt, it's not a intense hard physical um, therapy. So it's easy for everyone to do and you can't do any harm. So whether a horse needs um, a move in a specific area in their body, if you do it and you don't see any effect or any release or relaxing of the horse, it's okay. It means the horse might not have needed that move, but guess what? You haven't done any harm. Um, And that's where I could totally buy into it was no, I'm not, like I said, I'm not highly educated in all the muscles and the structure. I know general things, but I don't, I'm not real in depth in, in 
understanding all of that. So I can help my performance horses immediately. I can help them when I unload them at a show, if they've stood on a trailer for a long period of time, I can help them if they're in training consistently at home and I feel them getting a little sore, a little tense, or, you know, just a little bit crabby and not feeling great. Um, and it's, it's any time of day, whenever. Um, and what it also does, what I've really appreciated is it, it taught me how to look at a horse differently, not just looking at them, actually trying to assess and figure out where a potential problem might be. So it's been hugely educational for me and eye-opening the things that you can learn if you actually just stand back and look, look at the horse's posture, look at their facial expression. I was reading a great article the other day that said that I'm, don't quote me on this, but that horses have like up to 17 different facial expressions, just like humans have, I think up to 27 facial expressions that show all kinds of emotions and pain, discomfort, happiness, sadness, anger, fear, whatever, all, you know, on and on and on. And it keeps, you know, just becoming aware of those things will help your overall horsemanship because then you can assess whether it's a behavioral problem or whether it's a physical or a pain related problem. So, so the image for horses is awesome. Um, there's courses all over. You can find Gary on Facebook. Um, you can read up about it. Um, it's a simple technique. Um, there's five levels right now. Um, I was one of the first practitioners in the United States to gain all five levels. Um, so I can work on all, all horses. I can treat horses. I haven't made it a, a business to teach it yet because I'm slammed with everything else in life going on. But um, Gary comes, like I said, all the time, and his courses are fabulous. You will take away so much from it. Awesome. Um, yeah, you know, there's there's this whole realm of body work that uh, sort of exists outside your typical massage or chiropractic or things like that. And, you know, when I first looked at it, I thought, oh, just touching a horse and you get something. I don't know. But I've started messing with different methods myself and seen some downright spooky things happening and <laughs> yeah. uh I'm not a scientist I'm not a doctor so I can't put uh, I can't I can't put proper words to exactly what's going along uh going on physiologically in a horse but one of the things that it has taught me if nothing else is um Horses are so much more sensitive to pressure. We've been talking a lot about pressure and release this show. They are so much more sensitive to pressure than we even realize. They're incredibly, uh, their skin especially is very, very sensitive. Um, sometimes it doesn't seem that way because it seems like we've got to get the bigger bit and we've got to kick them harder and get some spur and a little whip and, and they're still ignoring us. And so they don't, they, yeah. some horses seem rather dull. But you watch that same horse in a pasture when a fly lands on his butt and he will come out of his skin. He will come unglued to that tiny little bit of pressure, that tiny little touch. And what you're saying about their facial expressions, I've really learned to look, even though outwardly their body is not doing anything, you can definitely see the tenseness in their face. Their lower eyelid will kind of pull down. Their mouth will get really tight. They'll get this hard, glassy look to their eye. And where I used to wait until the horse did the wrong thing before I realized there was a problem, now I'm looking at them. And even though they're going along with me and everything seems fine, when I see that look in their face, I'm like, okay, we have a problem. Like the horse we were talking about earlier, we had a horse that had... uh, 
uh, trouble loading in a trailer and going through tight spaces, that horse will usually tell you, especially in his face, where he's not comfortable. And that's where we need to tackle um, first is, okay, 50 feet from the trailer, he's starting to look really pensive yeah. and worried. So here's where we need to stay and we need to conquer this before we try to shove him in the trailer. Um, but oftentimes, and I'm I'm totally guilty of this, we don't see it or realize it until we're at the trailer and he's planted his feet. And that's why I never, I hardly ever believe people when they say, oh, he never does this. And it just came out of nowhere. You know, we were on the trail and then he bucked me off and he, you know, it, it completely happened out of nowhere. I'm like, it probably happened a mile back. He probably started telling you he wasn't okay, but it's hard to sometimes, and I'm, again, I'm still guilty of it. It's hard to pick up on yep. those signals when he told you a mile back, Hey, I don't, I don't yep. feel really good. And finally it culminated in him just not being able to take it anymore and doing the bad, scary thing. And then we're sitting on the ground, like what happened? It came out of nowhere. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, so yeah, this, this new age of horsemanship, this overall approach is exactly what you described. It's no longer just you know, waiting for something bad to happen. It's taking a step back, taking your time and really observing the whole picture and the whole horse um, before you, before you really consider or do anything. And, and we're all going to make mistakes. Like I, we, we know Mary, we are all guilty of, of doing things that we wish we hadn't, but you know what? It was our process and it was our learning um, curve that we are all on as individuals. So, you know, we're allowed to make mistakes. And the best part is that horses are the most forgiving creatures. Um, it's incredible what they will tolerate and what they can go through and how they can come back from things. So, you know, we just keep oh, educating yeah. ourselves, learning. So it's, it's a wonderful journey. Awesome. Uh, my smugness as a professional comes from years and years and years of hitting the dirt and having the, having the rug ripped from out from under my feet and me going, what the heck happened? And now I can go, oh, I so called that. <laughs> so if I seem really confident and together and understanding of horses now, it, it's come from a lot of injury and yeah. uh, <laughs> personally and mentally. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we've all yeah. been there and hopefully, you know, with, with more and more trainers out there bringing more more stuff to the masses people can learn uh from our pain and not their own um yeah. well good deal so if people want to find out more about you and what you're up to uh where can we find you online uh best place to go is on facebook megan warwick horsemanship or even my personal page um i kind of post dually on both and um i always share the emmet for horses stuff gary's coming back in um september and october and he will be all over the United States. Actually, he's back in August, August, September, and October. He's all up and down the East Coast. Um, he's all over the Midwest, California, Texas. Um, he, he is all over. And if anyone has any interest in scheduling or finding out more, um, check out Emmett for Horses online. Just Google it. Um, there's also a Facebook page as well. And check out Gary Wells' practitioner group as well. All right. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and it was very enlightening and hopefully we'll all learn to take a more complete horse uh, approach with our horses. Yes. Thank you for having me, Mary. Thanks, Mary. Or Megan. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> Thanks, Megan. Thanks, everybody. There's a lot of girl triggers out there with M's in their names. It's very hard to sort of fall it's, out. It's so right? hard for me to talk. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Great stuff. Very interesting how... 
that uh, learning about the 40,000 foot view, but using a, um, a digital lens to see it. Okay, we're going to take that big view, but it's all going, all those little tiny parts are going to have to be crystal clear to make a better horseman. Interesting. Yes, lots, lots of food for thought. Lots of food for thought. Now, do you have, we've got the time, do you have the energy for one more listener question? I do, I oh, do. Pick, one, pick um, one, there's lots. This is a mule question. Oh, yay! From, yes, from Brenda Nellums. Um, my mule gets his tongue over the snaffle bit. I have tried putting it high, low, and everywhere in between in his mouth. Any suggestions? Um, so, uh, the thing with mules is when they learn to do something like gape their mouth or put their tongue over the bit, it is incredibly hard to get that to stop. Um, but one thing that I've done with mules and horses alike, um, if they continue to put their tongue over the bit, and you've eliminated all, you know, other things that could be causing this. And it's just, it's this habit that they do now. Um, one of the things I've done is, uh, I don't really like to put a cavasson on them and try to shut their mouth over the bit because, um, mules are pretty good with that tongue. They can still do it. Even if you have a cavasson, it's not, it's not something I'm against, but, uh, if, if I'm showing in Western events and I use a nose band the whole time and then I take it off because, uh, we don't, we, we cannot show with them in most Western events. Um, they're a mule, especially they're going to go right back to sticking their tongue over the bit. Um, so one thing I've done that I've had some pretty good success with is I take a piece of twine or string and I, I run it, um, under the snaffle bit and I, I have two really long ends, and this will be a little hard to explain over uh, the air, but I'm going to try. And then I put the bridle in the mule's mouth, and so I'm going to have, I'll end up with a piece of twine coming out each side of their mouth, and I bring it up and tie it to their brow band. And what this does, so what what it's actually doing, it's not tying the bit down, it doesn't tie their tongue to anything, it's, it, it just keeps the bit up. And on the roof of their mouth. So they will try and try and try and push their tongue over the, the bit, but they will not be able to get it so over the bit. Again, does, does the string um, lift up the bit from the corners, from the corners of their mouth or from the center of the uh, bit where the joint the is? The center. From the center where the, the joint center. is. So the string runs through the, the center joint of the bit, because the center joint of the bit is created by two interlocking rings. That's how you end up with mm -hmm. a jointed bit. You run that string through one of those little round rings, and then out the sides, and then out from the sides up to the brow band. So it keeps the joint of the bit from lying against their tongue. Yeah, it'll okay. keep it. It'll keep it high uh, toward the roof of their mouth, Got rather it. than so. So they can't. There's not going to be space for them to get their tongue over. Got it. And uh, I'll usually just let them wear the bridle uh, like this. I might tie them up. Be very careful. Uh, I tie them with like a halter over that yeah, headstall. I'll yeah. take the reins off, and I want to be nearby. And I'll just let them figure it out. Like here's where the bit sits. You're not going to be able to get your tongue over. You're going to have to find a different place to put your tongue. And, um, I'll, I'll work them like that. Again, it does not interfere with how the bit works. 
um, in their mouth and it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, restrain any body part. It's not tying their nose to get, you know, it's not tying their mouth shut or tying the tongue. It's none of that. Um, and it just keeps the bit up so that they can't push their tongue over and they'll try and try and then go, ah, well, it's just less work if I just keep my tongue down underneath the bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I usually try to, I, I, uh, when I first start bridling colts, they're going to put their tongue over. They're going to, they're going to feel this weird bit in their mouth just and they're not going to know it, what yeah. to do with it. So I give them time to, you know, here's what it feels like if your tongue's over and put your tongue under. And most of the time those colts find out if I just rest my tongue under the bit, this is the best place for it to be. But if a colt is starting to show me signs of, oh, he's just going to put his tongue over the bit, I do this as early as I can. The earlier I catch it and just not make it a habit, the better it is. Um, You know, I also want to be mindful, of course, with how I'm using the bit. Am I doing something with my writing that's making them so uncomfortable they want to shove that tongue over the bit? That's Uh, an interesting point. Yeah, because – and one of the ways I used to – because students would have issues or or friends or something. Well, does he only do it when you're riding? Or can you put the bridle Mm -hmm. on the horse and he can wear it for four hours with no human interaction and he doesn't try to put his tongue over the bit? But – Exactly. That means that the human influence on those reins has a significant effect. So that's a great point to make. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you also, you, you want to make sure that you're being nice with your hands and timely with your release and it's the correct bit, you know, it's, it's the correct size and it's adjusted correctly. Those are all things to consider. Um, and, and doing that little trick that I do with the twine, there's a few different ways to tie it. Pretty much what you're wanting to get it to happen is to lift the bit up more towards the roof of their mouth. So it's very hard for them to stick their tongue over. It just keeps it kind of in a solitary position in their mouth and it helps them figure out, okay, that's not the answer, but if I put my tongue here, it's okay. Sometimes for some animals, it becomes just a way to pacify themselves. Um, so just, it sort of becomes a mindless habit. So this sort of helps break that cycle and I will wear it for as long, you know, once, once they start quieting down, uh, with that mouth, with that tongue, then I'll, I'll work on, uh, taking the twine out of the picture. You want to be careful in how you tie it. You don't want it to rub on the sides of their cheeks too hard. So just kind of be careful about that kind of thing. Um, but, but that's typically what I do if I've got one, I haven't had one in years, but if I do, uh, that's something I've done and I've had good success with that. Well, there you go. Something to, something to give a try. Well, thank you again, Mary, for stopping by the second Thursday of the month to talk all about training and geek out on horsemanship for folks who want to appropriately stalk you, contact you to do a clinic or demo, et cetera. Where can they find you? You can find me best places on Facebook under Mary Kitzmiller horsemanship. There you go. And uh, we will see you again next month. Uh, Next month is we are going to be away during your week. So we're going to have a best of. So you need to pick a best of for me to put up. Oh, okay. We will be back again in September with brand new stuff. Um, So we'll see you then. Yeah. All right. Sounds great. We'll be back again tomorrow with uh, more horses in the morning. It's a bad ads day. Everybody's favorite day.